The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Monstrous Regiment, featuring a roundtable of Dominion women seeking to honor Jesus Christ in applying God's Word fearlessly and faithfully in all callings and seasons of life, both in and out of the home, reversing the curse and smashing pagan strongholds. The devil walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, as the Bible says. But what does this mean for Christians today? And more to the point, what, if anything, can we do about it? Welcome to the Monstrous Regiment podcast. Today, I'd love to spend some time discussing the topic of spiritual warfare. Now, by spiritual warfare, I mean specifically the practices of intercessory prayer and, and verbal rebuke of demonic powers, uh, together with some theological groundwork, since those are the specific areas I am qualified to comment on. On the more extreme end of demonic activity, topics such as possession and exorcism are beyond the scope of this episode. However, I do want to start today's uh, discussion with an important disclaimer. Spiritual warfare is not simply about confronting demons. Long before we get to that, spiritual warfare is about walking in the Holy Spirit and not giving any ground to the devil in the first place. This is a practical matter of our daily work in the Lord. It means refusing to tolerate sin in our own lives. It means loving mercy and doing justice. It means having the law of God written on our hearts. It means shining a light on injustice and protecting the vulnerable. So long before we ever get to the point of rebuking demons, we need to be sure that we're walking in the light. Otherwise, none of the things I'm about to say in this episode are going to help you. My interest in the area of spiritual warfare is not merely academic. I'm an author of historical fantasy fiction, so I often find myself writing about the spiritual aspects of things that happen in real world history. I don't pretend that my stories are strictly truthful, but when I retell history, I'm always trying to say something about what the deeper spiritual realities might have been. And then along the way, I've learned some things about what the Bible says about spiritual warfare, and I've come to believe that by and large, parts of the church come to this subject with an attitude of unbiblical fear. For instance, C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters warns us of paying too little attention to the devil, and in the next sentence he warns us about paying too much attention. With all respect to Lewis, it's a sort of a damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario, and I've never really found this take to be very helpful. I've also had people express their concern to me directly about my making the topic of spiritual warfare a study at all. Multiple people have told me cautionary tales about Christians whose interest in the spiritual world has resulted in their living in fear, afraid of demons, subject to demonic attack, unable to function in their lives or their ministry. The unspoken assumption is that my own interest will lead me into a similar fear and a similar paralysis and that if I ever try to communicate what I've learned, I'll be passing on a sort of viral terror. And yet here I am after three years in a state of mental health that can only be described as offensively robust, and nobody seems to have caught anything off me either. Honestly, it was before I learned anything about spiritual warfare that I used to be afraid of demons. As a child, I'd have recurring nightmares in which I could feel myself under spiritual attack and be unable to fight back, either by calling on Jesus or by running away. And so, as an adult, there'd be times late at night even when I'd feel the darkness thickening and wonder if it was my own imagination frightening me or some real spiritual incursion. What was additionally frightening in all this 
was the idea that maybe I could make myself vulnerable to spiritual attack simply by being sensitive to it. I mean, what happens when you tell yourself not to think about something? You just think about it all the more and that makes you more frightened. So what happened when I started to learn about spiritual warfare was that I realized it doesn't work like that. Spiritual warfare is ethical judicial. You can't summon demons just by thinking about them. And unless you are actually giving ground to the devil by sin in some area of your life, you don't have to worry about him. These days when I wonder if something is a spiritual attack or my own hyperactive imagination, I don't spend any time worrying about it one way or another. I don't even bother turning on the light anymore. I just announce my authority in Christ to the darkness, turn over and go back to sleep. Now, I certainly don't dismiss my friend's stories about the Christians who come under spiritual oppression because of fear. After all, I felt the same kind of thing myself. But the answer to this problem is not to keep the Church of God in ignorance. The answer is to give us the weapons we need to fight back. The answer is not to run from the fight because we're weak. The answer is to put on the armor of faith and win the fight. You may not be aware of this, especially if you've grown up in reformed or cessationist churches, but the church actually does have at least one handbook on spiritual warfare. The book of Ephesians. There's actually another revelation, but we'll get to that uh, later. If you aren't intimately familiar with Ephesians already, I'd encourage you to open it up so that you can see what I'm talking about. In Ephesians, the main theme has to do with the mysterious unity that exists between Christ and the church. Paul starts uh, in Ephesians 1, 1 verse 3 by telling us that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Then he spends a great deal of time explaining how this can be. Uh, Jesus chose us before the foundation of the world, redeemed us, filled us with wisdom and prudence, and adopted us into the Father's family. The bottom line is, all things have been put under Jesus' feet, and we are Jesus' body. I don't think Paul is mixing his metaphors here at the end of chapter 1. I think he means that when all things are put under Jesus' feet, they are also put under us as his body. So because we have union with Christ... We have the authority of Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 6 makes it even clearer. Having been raised up from our deathly sins, we are right now being made to sit together in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. So, what does it mean to sit in the heavenly places with Jesus? Allow me to make a detour. In recent years, a lot of historical research has been done on ancient Mesopotamian mythology, which has shed some very interesting light on certain passages of scripture. Scholars have noted that in ancient Mesopotamian and Ugaritic literature, that is the literature of the ancient Syrian city-state of Ugarit, there's this concept of the assembly of the gods, or host of heaven, or divine council. Uh, the dictionary of deities and demons in the Bible states, a particular form of consultation reappears at Ugarit and in the Bible. The high god calls for some god to volunteer to resolve a crisis, Different members of the council may be proposed and prove inadequate. Finally, when all appears lost, a winning proposal is made and accepted and the saviour is commissioned. In general, it was in the supreme council that the destinies of individual gods, of cities, and indeed all of humanity were decided. In Ugaritic literature, El presides over the council. Now, of course, I'm not saying that Mesopotamian mythology has the force of biblical revelation. However, these mythologies arose very early in history, shortly after the Tower of Babel, at a time and in a place when rebellious mankind would have still remembered a great deal of truth about the spiritual world and how it worked. 
uh, scholars agree that there's a very similar concept of the divine council in the Bible. In 1 Kings 22, the prophet Micaiah describes Jehovah seated on his throne in the midst of his own court, asking one of the hosts of heaven to volunteer to deceive King Ahab. A spirit volunteers to do so and becomes a lying spirit in the mouth of Ahab's prophets. A similar commissioning ceremony appears in Isaiah 6, with the Lord asking for volunteers to uh, go to prophesy to Israel, and this time Isaiah volunteers and is commissioned. Another happens in Job chapter 1, with a spirit accusing Job and then being sent to test him. And there's another similar scene in Zechariah chapter 3, when the accuser, this will be translated as Satan in your Bibles, rather than a name, the, the word Satan may simply be a title similar to accuser or prosecutor. So when the accuser brings an accusation against the high priest Joshua in Zechariah 3, the Lord overrules the accusation and commissions Joshua to bring forth a future saviour. There are lots of other Old Testament references to the Divine Council, and some of them are not always evident on a surface reading. My favourite is um, Psalm 89, 6-8. This psalm asks, For who in the heaven can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints, and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto thee? You may be surprised to learn that the original Hebrew of this passage is full of heavenly council imagery. It speaks of God sitting in the council of the holy ones. The sons of the mighty, literally in the original Hebrew, are the children of the gods and the convocation of the holy ones. So this psalm is definitely envisioning the Lord seated in his heavenly council. Psalm 82 is one of the most illuminating passages on the topic of the heavenly council as it existed in Old Testament times. And that reads, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the world are out of course. It's fascinating that in this psalm, we see God standing in his heavenly council, rebuking these powerful spirits for failing to judge justly. Remember from what we saw in Job and Zechariah, that the satanic accusers of Job and uh, Joshua the high priest, these satanic accusers still seem to be official members of the divine council at this stage. Psalm 82 goes on to say that, to uh, show the Lord speaking. I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High, but ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. He's still speaking to the heavenly council here. He's prophesying that despite the power and the glory of the spirits on his council, they will die and fall just like mortal men. The psalmist then responds in his own words, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit the nations. Now, we don't know a huge deal about how the heavenly council actually worked in old testament times but from what we do know from scripture it seems that there were fallen spirits on this council at this time and that these spirits had a role in governing the ungodly nations around israel for example in ezekiel 28 ezekiel is given a message to the prince of tyre which says in part thou art the anointed cherub that covereth thou wast upon the holy mountain of god thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee 
So in the same way in Daniel 10, the, the angel Gabriel tells Daniel that he was sent to answer Daniel's prayers, but he was delayed in a battle against the spiritual prince of Persia. Later in the same passage, Gabriel tells Daniel about a new rising spiritual power, this, the, the, uh, the prince of Greece. So several times in the Old Testament, God speaks of Israel as his own special inheritance, suggesting that while rulership of the other nations was deputed to these fallen princes, God ruled Israel directly himself. But Psalm 82 prophesied a coming time when God was going to destroy the demons who ruled over the pagan nations. He was going to judge the earth and inherit the nations himself. And this is exactly what we see happening in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. The Apostle John has a vision of God enthroned in the midst of a heavenly council, which is now made up of 24 elders. An angel asks for a volunteer to break the seals and open the scroll. John tells us that no one is found in the cosmos who is able to do this thing. But then the Lamb appears and opens the seals, and this inaugurates God's judgment on the earth, a judgment which saves the lives of a precious remnant of persecuted saints. What we have here is the very same divine council drama that we saw enacted in the Old Testament and in Syrian Mesopotamian mythology. But this time the appointed saviour is taking up supreme authority, not for a short while, but for all time. In the course of this salvific judgment in Revelation 12, for the very first time, the devil and all his angels are cast out of heaven, no longer to have access to the divine council. Quote, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. In Revelation, therefore, we see the Psalm 82 prophecy being fulfilled as the old order of corrupt angels is destroyed. The accuser of Job and Zechariah is cast out and Jesus Christ inherits all the nations as his own inheritance. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. It's pretty incredible. But the most amazing part is that there's still a divine council in heaven, and this time, humans are on it. Revelation 20 verse 4 says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads, or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 3 suggests that the saints have a role in judging the old corrupt council. Know ye not that we shall judge angels. Now, we come all the way back to Ephesians again. He has raised Christ from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but in that, but also in that which is to come, and has put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. He has quickened us together with Christ, and has raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Doesn't that make a whole lot more sense now? Paul tells us that since we died in Christ's death, and were resurrected in Christ's resurrection body. Therefore, we sit and reign together with Christ in the heavenly places. And in the process, every other spiritual authority that rebels against Jesus has not only been put under his feet, but under our feet as we reign with Jesus on his heavenly council. The demons tremble at Christ's power. And that very same power is our inheritance in Christ. 
I want you to know this and believe it with every fiber of your being. You are a member of the Divine Council. This is what it means to have access to the throne of grace. There is no demon in this cosmos that has more authority than you do because Christ's authority is your authority. This is why you can put on the whole armor of God and wrestle fearlessly against spiritual wickedness in this world. Now, I have to concede that since part of my argument here relies on revelation, you have a few questions about the timeline of all this. Do we really know, after all, that the saints are currently reigning as part of the Heavenly Council? There are multiple views on that thousand-year passage, and for that matter, do we really know when it is that the devil and his angels get cast out of heaven? If that's already happened, then why does Paul speak of the saints judging the angels as if that's still going to occur in the future? Well, very quickly. I take the view on the viewpoint on eschatology known as postmillennialism. Paul spoke of the saints judging the angels as a future event because it was future relative to him. I believe that the New Testament, including the book of Revelation, was written during the time of transition between the Old and New Covenants, between the life, death and resurrection of Jesus and his judgments 40 years later in 70 AD. I take the bulk of the book of Revelation as being a prophecy of events which occurred in the 1st and 2nd centuries AD, primarily covering the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the Bar Kokhba rebellion 150 years later. And I think the war in heaven described in Revelation 12 is probably supposed to have happened shortly before 70 AD as an answer to the prayers of the persecuted saints at the time. Following this war, the devil was bound in the lake of fire, the saints were enthroned on the heavenly council, and although some demonic activity continues to the present day, by and large the church is now conducting mopping up operations. That's a general idea for a very detailed and convincing explanation of this viewpoint. I can recommend Phil Kaiser's sermon series on the book of Revelation. I should note that I have areas of strong disagreement with Pastor Kaiser. I think he's extremely weak on some things. Kinism, for example. And his critique of the Carrion Principle was not impressive, but he's pretty strong on Revelation. Chew the meat, spit the bones. Still, of course, it's entirely possible that I'm all wrong on Revelation and that the thousand-year reign of the saints depicted in chapter 20 has not yet begun. I still think that the bulk of my argument stands because the book of Ephesians stands, and there's no possible doubt about the timeline here. Ephesians definitely talks about the way things stand during the present New Covenant age. Christ still announced at his ascension that he was being given all authority in heaven and on earth. He's still already been enthroned far above every principality and power. Paul tells us that we sit in the heavenly places in Christ and have access by the Holy Spirit to the Father right now. So even without the context that Revelation provides, Ephesians still tells us that we have the spiritual power now. So having, having laid the groundwork for our authority in Christ over the demons, let's talk about some of the ways that some of us may be experiencing some demonic activity and why. I don't want to provide a comprehensive study of what the Bible has to say about the de de devil and demonic activity here. I would recommend the book The Adversary by Mark I. Bubik as a level-headed scripture-based study on this topic by someone with more experience than me. However, there are a few things that are fairly plain from scripture. Scripture tells us that the devil is our enemy. He can appear as an angel of light. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has a kingdom of darkness. He is called a liar, a deceiver, a destroyer, a tempter, and the evil one. 
Even Christians who are saved need to engage in spiritual warfare. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Ephesians 6 tells us, Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So that gives us our marching orders. From our position of strength in Jesus, we need not to be complacent, but we must take the battle to the devil, the more so as Jesus promised that the gates of hell would not stand against his church. Ephesians 6 goes on to tell us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I think this is extremely important for Christians to understand. As my co-host Elizabeth mentioned in our previous episode on tribalism, which was brilliant, if you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend it, Huge parts of the modern church have allowed themselves to be distracted from fighting our real enemies in the spiritual places. We're more interested in the culture wars than we are in spiritual warfare. We ignore the spiritual enemy and instead focus on fighting the very captives we were sent to save. We demonize those who disagree with us on politics and religion or face masks. Instead of casting out the very real demons behind it all, instead of binding the strong man, we shoot his captives. No wonder we don't see any positive change in this world. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 45 to 15 tells us that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Quote, it is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Paul was writing this at a time when many Jewish believers were turning to Christ and being persecuted by their synagogue authorities. The Apostle John referred to these synagogue leaders as a synagogue of Satan. We should, of course, expect to see the devil working through unbelievers in the world, but we shouldn't become complacent about demonic activity in the church either. Indeed, when I think about the most obviously demonized people I've ever met, every single one of them was a professing Christian. As I said at the start of this episode, the first step in spiritual warfare has to be walking in the spirit. Satan is able to masquerade as an angel of light because the church of God shelters hypocrisy, false teaching and wicked doctrine within it. They may seem like pretty low bars to clear, but I've witnessed so many Christians closing ranks to protect kinists, misogynists, abusers and other false teachers of a similar ilk and that's just in my own tradition. Let's be real. No amount of spiritual warfare training will help us if we can't even recognize the enemy. Scripture shows us that demonic activity may take several forms. It may involve prompting and emboldening people to sin as happened in the Garden of Eden or with Judas Iscariot. It may involve causing sickness and suffering. Acts 10 verse 38 says that Jesus went around healing all those who were under the power of the devil. Or it may involve laying traps and snares for spiritual leaders, as we see in 1 Timothy 3 verse 7. It may involve accusing and condemning us for forgiven or imagined sins, or trying to distract us from hearing and remembering God's word, as in the parable of the sower. Or it may involve infiltrating the church with those under their control, or tormenting God's people in hopes of leading them into sin, as happened to Job in the Old Testament, or Peter at Christ's trial. Throughout Revelation, we see the devil acting through worldly leaders, to persecute and imprison believers, or to set up godless totalitarian governments, as in Revelation 13. Yet against all these efforts of the evil one, we have the power of Jesus Christ. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you, James 4 verse 7. And in Ephesians 4 verse 27, Paul says, and do not give the devil a foothold. 
I think these verses show two ways that Christians may come into conflict with spiritual wickedness. First, some of us may at some times in our lives, through the promptings of our flesh, give the devil a foothold in our lives, as in Ephesians 4 verse 27. And this may happen even to Christians when we indulge in sin, especially repeated sin. Have you ever had to deal with a person who has become completely spiritually blinded to their own sin to the point that they are unable to see the need for repentance? Again, this is why I cannot overstate the importance of walking in the Holy Spirit on a daily practical basis as the foundation of all spiritual warfare. It's only when we're firmly rooted in Christ that we have any authority at all over the enemy. It's only when we submit ourselves to God that we can resist the devil. Or have you ever found yourself beset by some particular sin that you seem unable to resist even though you know how deadly it is? Have you ever had some weird, malicious or self-destructive thought flit through your head at the most unlikely moment? Perhaps not all such things come about as a result of demonic activity, but I've often found that when the person who is being oppressed like this has a sincere desire to be free, spiritual warfare prayer has immense power to rebuke such thoughts and break the hold of such sins. I think it's important to note that the basis of demonic activity in our lives is ethical judicial. We may give the devil a foothold through sin. It's also possible that, as with Job or with the Apostle Paul, who had a recurring problem with a spiritual tormentor, God may permit us to undergo demonic attack for the same reason as the man born blind in John 9, that the amazing works of God may be made manifest in us. But in either case, we can be confident that God's grace is sufficient for us. We know that as long as we remain in Christ, Nothing can truly harm us, and certainly nothing can snatch us out of his hand. We may suffer, but we suffer in hope, knowing that God holds the key to our deliverance. As an aside, some of you may be wondering if it is true that Christians may come under spiritual oppression as a result of sins committed by previous generations of their family. This is something which has often been taught in Pentecostal circles, but I'm not convinced the scripture bears it out. I think that Exodus 20 verses 5 to 6 is relevant here. I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Then in Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel goes into this in a great deal of depth. He says as part of it, Yet you say, Why does not the Son bear the iniquity of the Father? When the Son has done that which is lawful and right, and has kept all my statutes and has done them, he shall surely live. The soul that sins, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. So, taking these two passages together, I have to come away with the conclusion that although there are multi-generational consequences for sin, this only applies to multiple generations of wickedness, just as the multi-generational blessings for righteousness mount up to great mercies for righteous people. So it's my opinion that a righteous person will not bear the demonic consequences of an ancestor's wickedness so long as they no longer perpetrate, excuse, or idolize that sin. The second way that Christians may come into conflict with spiritual wickedness, besides their own struggles, is through some kind of relationship with another person who may be suffering from demonic activity. In the adversary, Mark I. Bubeck identifies three escalating levels of demonic attack on people as demonic oppression, demonic obsession, and demonic possession. I don't intend to go into detail on these things since, as far as I know, I've only had to do with people suffering from oppression, but I appreciated reading what the adversary had to say on this topic, and I would recommend finding and discipling yourself to Christians who are active in spiritual warfare in order to learn more. 
As for demonic oppression, I believe I've seen this take several forms. It may involve a person being blinded to their own sins so that they are unable to see that they are wrong. It may involve a person being in bondage to a specific sin. It may involve a spirit of condemnation, guilt or blame either or shame either for things that the Bible doesn't condemn as sin or for real sins which the person has already confessed and repented of. Remember, <laughs> Satan means accuser or adversary, the one who seeks to prosecute and condemn us before the throne of God, so it's no surprise if he continues to do that. Um, it may involve self-destructive or suicidal tendencies, deep irrational feelings of bitterness or hatred towards certain persons or groups, doubt of one's own self, salvation, uh, terrifying nightmares, and so on. I would definitely encourage you to include aggressive spiritual warfare praying as part of your ministry to a person suffering from such problems. So far, I've outlined the basis for a Christian's practice of spiritual warfare, and I've identified some of the warning signs which I personally have come to associate with demonic attack. What I want to do next is briefly outline how I tend to proceed in actually engaging in spiritual warfare. Again, this is on a very basic level, spiritual warfare 101. So first, if I'm going to be doing spiritual warfare, I usually begin it from a position of reading God's word and praying. If we are to confront demons, we cannot afford to do it in our own strength, and we cannot afford to do it naively since the devil is the father of lies and his children take off to him. We must be full of the truth of God's word and we must be full of the authority of Christ. And that means keeping our own house clean. Prepare for the battle by studying and memorizing the word of truth confessing and repenting of your sins, asking the Lord for wisdom, and praying for his Holy Spirit to watch over you and the situation as you begin to address it. In some situations, we may need to fast as well as pray. This is actually a pretty organic process for me, since I have found that normally the Spirit prompts me to engage in spiritual warfare prayer as part of my own ordinary devotions. It's while I'm reading the Bible and talking to God about the challenges that I and my friends are facing that I ordinarily find myself being prompted to speak prophetically against evil spirits. Once I begin speaking to the spirits, I start speaking aloud because I'm not convinced they can read my mind. They may be spiritual, but they aren't all-knowing or all-perceiving, the way our Lord is. I will begin by declaring to them my identity with Christ and the authority I have in him. I will, if I can, address the spirits by name, for instance, as a spirit of bitterness or control. Sometimes I encounter some form of resistance. Once I was praying against demons on behalf of one person I knew, I didn't know exactly what she might be dealing with. So I mentioned fear, religiosity, and a couple of others without much effect. But when I mentioned a spirit of control, I felt that resistance. For me, it usually comes as a sense of psychological fear with, you know, chills, hairs prickling on the back of the neck and so on. I mean, obviously I don't assume I'm having a spiritual conflict every single time I feel this. Uh, fear comes from all sorts of causes. But at that moment, there was no obvious reason why I should suddenly be overtaken by the physical symptoms of fear upon addressing just one more on a list of suspects. At any rate, I took that as a sign to be even more aggressive and thorough in return. Something might have tried to frighten me off, but I have no reason to accept this fear that comes from outside me. It was just trying to stop me. So, tell the demons that you bind them. Tell them that you command them to go away. Tell them that they have no authority over yourself, your property, or any part of Jesus' creation. Quote scripture at them. <clears throat> Command them to go where Jesus is sending them, to the lake of fire where Satan is bound. Confess the promises and power of God against them. Have you ever really done this and felt freedom? I certainly have. And it doesn't matter if, with time, the spirits come back for another go, because you know who they are now. You know they have to run from the name of Jesus. You'll be ready for them. 
Finally, invite the Holy Spirit to fill in the space that the demons have left behind them. It isn't enough to clean the house. We have to become full of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God has no rivals. When we are filled with him, we'll have all the grace and strength we need to fearlessly confront future conflicts. Now, there are a number of great templates for spiritual warfare prayer out there, but with my love of history, obviously my own favorite one is a historical example from way back. In the 4th century AD, St. John Chrysostom penned an absolute howler of a spiritual warfare prayer, for, <clears throat> which is, I believe, still used today by the Eastern Orthodox Church. I love John Chrysostom's prayer for so many reasons. One reason is that it's a brilliant example of all the spiritual warfare principles I've learned and practiced in a small way myself. Another reason is that it's pretty much solid scripture. There's a general riff on Jude's comment about how the archangel Michael called on the Lord to rebuke Satan when they were struggling over the body of Moses, and it's pure wasabi. There have been plenty of occasions when I felt my family under spiritual attack and have just prayed through this prayer as a sort of general spiritual tonic, but I've also used parts of it as a model, adapting it for some reason or another. You can check the podcast webpage for a link to this oldie, but goodie. Once again, I would recommend reading Mark Ibubeck's book, The Adversary. Unfortunately, this is the only practical handbook on spiritual warfare that I've currently read, so it's the only one I can personally recommend. I do differ from Bubeck in certain theological matters, but this is still a confident, level-headed, unafraid look at the topic of spiritual warfare that goes into much more depth than I have in this podcast. A final book I would recommend is Michael Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm, which helped me to parse out a lot of the material about the Heavenly Council that I discussed at the start of this episode, although I have even more urgent disagreements with him. It's still well worth a read, especially when allied with a robust post-millennial eschatology. To conclude, I will be the first person to admit that I have very little boots-on-the-ground experience in spiritual warfare. There are many Christians with far more experience and knowledge in this area than myself. All I can do is share what little I know with those who know less, and hope that those with more experience will graciously excuse what I lack. This has been Spiritual Warfare 101. Thank you for listening. I'm Susanna Roundtree from the Monstrous Regiment. Thank you for listening to the Monstrous Regiment. We hope this podcast inspires and equips you to go and exercise dominion for Christ's kingdom. Terrible as an army with banners. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.